Hello and welcome to Pocket Theology. This week, Jason and I are going to be talking about a serious argument amongst churches on how miraculous spiritual gifts exist, or if they don't really. So, before we get started, Jason, greet the people. Hello, everyone. How are you doing this fine morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to this podcast? Hello, everybody. That's what you just did. I know. I didn't. I forgot that we did the greeting thing and I didn't give any thought to how to say hi to people. Anyways, Martin, we're going to argue today. Well, not really argue. We're just going to kind of debate, right? No, we're going to straight up fist fight. That's going to be really hard to do from this far apart. From 360 miles, yeah. I have really long arms. Before our argument starts, uh, our debate, our friendly banter, before that starts, I want to give a little bit of a definition of terms. Is that cool? All right. So the first word, it's a word that Martin already used, miraculous spiritual gift. I guess it's not a word. It's three words. It's a whole phrase. By that, we just mean an ability given by God to perform miracles, to do supernatural things, things that are unexplainable by naturalistic means. This is stuff like the ability to pray and heal someone of a disease or injury, the ability to speak in languages that you've never learned, or the ability even to bring someone back from the dead. And there's plenty of other examples that you could tag on here. Something that is enabled by God, done by a person and is totally unexplainable by natural means. So the ability to perform miracles, the two views that we'll be debating, the one that I'm going to be arguing is called cessationism from the word to secede, to take away, to break apart, which is the belief that these sorts of gifts don't happen anymore. That once upon a time they did, but they don't happen anymore. And we're not talking about people in the South either. Lordy. Anyways, the view that Martin's going to be arguing is called continuationism, which is the belief that miraculous spiritual gifts are still given. Now, there's a split here because some people are going to say that it's super common. Anyone who has enough faith can have some sort of miraculous spiritual gift. Those are going to be charismatic churches. And some people are going to say, like in our movement, this is a lot more common. They're going to say, hey, miraculous spiritual gifts are still given, but they're really infrequent. Someone might be able to perform a miracle once and then never do one again. Like, so it's rare. It's really, really special, but it does still happen. We're not going to debate that difference. We're just going to argue cessationism, continuationism. What does the Bible say? How can we reason about this? And disclaimer these aren't necessarily the stances we actually hold, so don't like get your pitchforks out if you disagree with us. We're just arguing for the sake of arguing and hopefully teaching you guys something. So, ready to go, Martin? Also, Jason and I just like to fight. We do. And playing devil's advocate is kind of fun sometimes. Anyway, so I'm going to start off, and I'll just kind of lay out a case for cessationism. It's not like 100% every proof text, just a handful of important texts. So... The summary of this stance, again, is miraculous gifts were always rare and temporary and clusters of miracles happened at specific moments throughout Israel's history and early church history to establish the purposes of God. It is now unnecessary 
because we have the scriptures and they are complete and because the church is firmly established. So we don't need them anymore and we don't have them anymore. And there's some verses you can point to that will indicate this depending on how you read them. So Ephesians 2, 19 through 20 says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So that idea, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, it does not say it is built on the foundation of miracles that you have witnessed. It does not say that it is built on the foundation of miraculous events that will continue to go on or built on the foundation of the gifts that the Holy Spirit continues to give people. It says it is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Uh, John 20, 31 says, but these events, these acts of Jesus have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John could have recorded all sorts of stuff about Jesus and specifically recorded things that would allow you to believe and have eternal life. When you take these two verses together, I think it indicates, I'm going to argue that it indicates that miracles were intended to establish the church prior to us having access to the apostles teachings. John isn't the only one of the apostles that when he was writing was intending to give us information necessary to believe. Now we have that. Think about Martin. If you didn't have any scripture to look back on, or you only had the Old Testament, and someone came to you and said the Messiah has already come, and he died and he resurrected from the dead, how can you confirm that they're not lying to you? That's fair. Without scripture, there's no real, no real proof of that. Yeah. Besides, you know. The numerous historical documents outside of scripture with some sort of historical evidence and the earliest historical documents we have affirming this is the scriptures so if we're talking about 60 a.d and some missionary paul or whoever is in europe telling this story josephus hasn't written yet you know so we don't have external documents that we can point to and even if there are some floating around they're not widely accessible so in the absence of those documents, how do I know this person talked to me isn't just a crazy person? I don't have anyone else to ask about it. So they perform a miracle. And I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to me, tells me a crazy story, and then brings someone back from the freaking dead or makes a lame person walk, they're going to get a lot more credence in my eyes all of a sudden if it's obvious that it hasn't been staged, that it hasn't been faked. If I have real reason to believe that this is a legitimate miracle, all of a sudden, okay, well, I need to listen to this person because they're performing freaking miracles. So it served a purpose in the early church before we had the scriptures to look at to say the teaching of these individuals is true. Okay. I don't have a serious note. Uh, <clears throat> you said, I don't know about you. And I fought every urge to run over you and say, but I'm feeling 22. I hate you so much. T-Swizzle is life. I hate you so much. See, I should be getting upset about this debate and being like, I want to fight you because we're arguing with each other about scripture, like in the most holy and Jesus loving way possible, of course. But instead, I just feel rage that you bring up Taylor Swift and Ted Lasso in every conversation I have with you. Or Noah Kahn. He's pretty great, too. Yeah, I feel like you've only brought him up once to me because you and Brandy. I'm on a wicked me. kick right now. So I believe you but it's anyway. too depressing so i can't listen to it a lot anyways <clears throat> uh i'm gonna move on to the next verse and just ignore everything you just said cool cool first corinthians 13 10 says but when the perfect comes the partial will be done away with now i want to be really honest here 
the phrase the perfect is just as vague in Greek as it is in English. It literally means the perfect thing. And then it doesn't tell you what the thing is. There's a couple guesses different interpretations of what the perfect could mean. One possibility from the surrounding context is that it refers to perfect love, especially like the perfect love and peace that we will know in the eschaton when Jesus returns in the end times. That's possible. But that phrase, the partial, is certainly talking about the end of spiritual gifts. It is entirely possible, even likely, that the phrase the perfect refers to the completion of the canon. The so the phrase perfect also means complete or mature or something like that in in Koine in Greek. So the idea is that there's a completion of something that makes spiritual gifts unnecessary and something that fits that description very well is a completion of the canon, just like I previously argued. Now, I'll admit that verse could be talking about something else. And if it is, then it just doesn't bear into this argument. But that's a piece of potential proof. I'll put it that way. That I did want to throw out there. Gareth Reese, anyone listening to this knows him. That is his interpretation. So I'll, I'll name drop there a little. And bit. it's wrong. You'll get your chance in a minute, Martin. Jude, verse 3, because Jude only has one chapter, so you don't give a chapter number for anyone that didn't know that. Uh, Jude, verse 3 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation that we share, I feel compelled to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. This is not so much about miraculous spiritual gifts in general, but specifically prophecy. When the canon was completed, when the apostles' teaching was given, the faith is completed once and for all. There will be no additions to it. So regardless of whether you're a cessationist or not, the Book of Mormon, the Quran, whatever other holy document that claims to have been given by a prophet that you can name that comes after the completion of the New Testament canon is not valid if it contradicts the teaching of the New Testament. Because the faith has been completed once and for all, even if God was going to speak to a prophet, he would not be adding to what has already been given, or that contradicts Jude verse 3. But moreover, what's the need for interpretation? If we have for miraculous interpretation, not what like pastors do, like Martin and I, of course, you have to read the document and understand what the document means. But why would we need miraculous interpretation if we already have the tradition of the church, we already have people given a non-miraculous gift of interpretation, and we have the scriptures themselves. It's not necessary. The faith has already been given once and for all. Whew, I have a few more. But actually, I won't, I'm going to stop there and I'll bring up the other ones like as needed. Basically, the big emphasis behind all of these is miraculous spiritual gifts are not needed upon the completion of the canon. And that's going to be the driving force behind this argument. So I'll stop there. I could point to a few other ones. There's a bit I want to get into later about laying on of hands. So don't let me forget about that. But I'm going to stop there. I'm going to let you answer. Okay. Jason, I have a couple of significant questions. One of them being the completion, the perfect, the the mature, whatever you want to call it. So you mentioned that it has the potential to not be the completion of the New Testament scripture. The chances are that it's not concerning New Testament scripture. Most of scripture does not talk about when scripture is written it doesn't say well once everything's recorded then we're good right more than likely this is the way that i read this this is the way that a continuationist would read this is that it's talking about when the gospel message is completed which when the message is completed 
it's after Jesus's resurrection, right? The gospel message is done then. Everything has been shared for the most part. Well, even even if that is your stance, that would still be a piece of evidence to support a cessationist argument because this thing is finished. We have no further need of prophecy at the very least. But this is where I'm going. So if we talk about the message being shared and being recorded, being given to people, right? With written communication not being the primary motive communicating with people for the most part, right? Written communication is extremely expensive. It's not the primary way that people would have shared the story of Jesus. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to refer to the completed writing of scripture. It might refer to the completed events. Maybe that's a, that's a big, maybe more than likely. What I think it is, is appealing to the, end of the gospel which would be jesus's second coming the the time when the world is perfect right and i think that most translators when they translate it to be the perfect that's what they're probably looking for is when the world is made perfect again well okay just like i'm gonna be really aggressive here i don't give half a crap what a translator think it thinks it means like I mean, I I, you and I both have had plenty of disagreements with translators as we're preparing lessons. I mean, we agree with them much more often than we disagree, but we've probably had significant disagreements with how certain texts are handled. So what I like what they say, I'm going to use it. So, and the verse right before, which I probably should have read, it's part of the same sentence, but with Paul sentences are difficult because the original texts have no punctuation. And if you a try to put punctuation in and be honest, he has run on sentences that are like paragraphs long. It's insane. But anyway, the verse right before verse nine says, for we know in part and prophesy in part. So the idea is there is partial knowledge and partial teaching. And the completion of Christian teaching is in the scripture, <laughs> especially if you're a Protestant, you have to affirm the completion of the teachings is in the scriptures. You cannot add to that. Now, I've heard some people take the verse from Revelation that anyone who adds to this book will be cursed and say, that's talking about all the Bible. I th that's talking about Revelation specifically. Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll take that one, throw it out. Yeah. So I want, I want to throw that out there in case someone like thought of that and said, yeah, the Bible says I, that's John talking about Revelation specifically. But the idea, at least, that you cannot add to Scripture is valid now if there's an area where scripture doesn't teach then you have to have a methodology for figuring out how christians should behave but if scripture teaches on something that's it that's the final word that's the final say that it's completed it is teleos it's perfect like i said more than likely it's not referring to a written message it's not referring to what's been written down maybe it's referring to what's been shared maybe once everything has been shared with somebody so it can continue Maybe you guys can't tell, but I have, I have very little faith that that's what it is. More than likely it is when, once the message of Christ has been shared to the ends of the earth, or as other authors might put it, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. I think that that's more than likely 
what it's looking at is when people have been reached or have received the message and the biblically the only time that we can really see the message or the gospel being shared with everybody or having everybody heard it is when Jesus comes back in this amazing image of going over the world and defeating demons and all of this crazy supernatural looking stuff. So the, the argument here is I'm arguing it refers to the completion of a corpus that gives you access to the knowledge in question. Martin, you're arguing it refers to when actual perfect knowledge is realized by every living being yes. in the end times, which I did mention is possible, and that is a common interpretation. Probable. Is possible. <clears throat> Anyways, we'll leave that here because at this point, all we can do is just say, no, I think it's this. No, I think it's this. And even if, the, even if you could absolutely prove that your interpretation of this text is true, it still doesn't invalidate the other text I pointed out. Okay. Remind me what the last one you pointed out was, because I had something and I don't remember what it was. Uh, Jude 3 was the last one that I read. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to God's holy people. Okay, and you're arguing that this refers to specifically the gift of prophecy, right? That it, that it invalidates the gift of prophecy because any message from God, at the very least, any message from God that adds to, so this is your verse, if you guys were thinking Revelation earlier, anyone who adds to this is cursed, like this is your verse instead. Anything that adds to the faith that was entrusted to God's people at the time of Jude's writing adds content to that cannot be from the lord because the faith once and for all has already been entrusted now if you're really astute bible scholar and you're sticking with conservative dates you'll say but revelation was written after jude yeah but revelation doesn't teach anything the other books don't it says things in a really bizarre and alien way but it's not teaching anything new and yeah john if was you read already through... a apostle inspired writer and prophet before so yeah. if there's a if continuation you read through, of this, you already possessed, fine. Sorry, go ahead. If you read through the book of Revelation, almost everything has a footnote because it's pointing at something else. It's yeah. not with a good study Bible, it should. Yeah. But this verse usually gets not pointed at for specifically the gift of prophecy. Usually gets pointed at for what books are inspired. So if it comes after a date of Jude... You can probably assume it's not inspired because, oh, Jude said nothing else should be added. And that's that's the I've, way that I've heard it used most. I've of the time. heard people use it that way, but you have the issue of Revelation, which is probably, at least by conservative dates, is probably the last book of the New Testament written. And I'll admit I'm not a Jude scholar, but I'm fairly certain it's before the Gospel of John as well. Even by conservative dates, I'm fairly certain. But if you're listening to this and you're curious, fact check me on that one. So. Yeah. But even that, I mean, Gospel of John really doesn't teach any any concept. It phrases it very differently, but doesn't teach any concept not found elsewhere. It emphasizes certain concepts much more strongly than other books do, like the divinity of Christ. But the divinity of Christ is found throughout the Gospels and throughout Paul's epistles. So. 
it existed well before the book of John was written anyways in the books we now know as the New Testament. So it's not anything new. The faith once and for all had already been entrusted and recorded. And there may have been a few books emphasizing other things, like emphasizing certain parts of that more so or writing it in different ways that were written later. But the faith had already been entrusted and nothing was added to it afterward. And I think personally, that's a lot of a lot of weight to put on one phrase, but it is an important phrase in the sentence. So I get it. We so we'll agree, though, that at the very least, the concept here is the content of the faith cannot be added to at the very least that's what it's saying yeah whether or not that that means there's no form of prophecy is what we're arguing about but at the very least like the book of mormon cannot be an inspired document because it adds to the content of the faith it teaches things that are not taught in the new testament so it can't be inspired yes okay so, so the very least, no matter where you sit on this or if you don't care, at least take that much home. Yeah. If someone has, hey, there's, there was this book written in 1970 or whatever that was inspired by this prophet of God that lived in Marion, Illinois. Like, just don't know if it, if it goes beyond what scripture says already, what scripture already teaches, it's not inspired. See, and I, I can, I can say this, but I don't know that I'll say it right. It seems like what Jude is writing for is the faith once entrusted. So it was given all at once, which I would argue was Jesus's message. But that is all. So even the epistles would be not necessarily adding content to Jesus's teaching, but explaining more than anything. Yeah. And I mean, you can argue the same thing about the prophets, that the prophets really aren't adding. That's a whole debate you can get into, but the prophets really aren't adding to the content of the old covenant, but they're explaining how to live under it. And the epistles in the same way, whether it's Paul's epistles or John's writings or whatever, they aren't adding to the content of the new covenant. They're expounding on the teachings of Jesus, trying to explain to you how to live in a first century context, how to live as a Christian. Yeah. So here's where my argument is going to be. If, and a continuationist would assume that this is referring to Jesus's message, right? Because Jesus completes the gospel message by dying and resurrecting. <clears throat> then the faith once for all is com- referring to Jesus's message of salvation. Because he even says, I was writing to you about the salvation that we share, which is in contending for the faith once for all. But there are still miraculous gifts that occur after Jesus, including, in some places, prophecy, like when Peter receives the vision in Acts 10 for Cornelius. So we can see that prophecy still happens after that. That's not really prophecy. I mean, he receives receives a prophetic vision, which would be he's not told to go tell anyone about it. He is told to act on it, though. He is. He and he had to tell someone about it at some point because it's it got written down for us to read now. Um, at the very least, it's not adding content. So, okay, so maybe right now is a good is a good time to bring up the laying on of hands thing. So another contention for 
cessationists is that miraculous spiritual gifts in the New Testament were given to or performed by Jesus, by his apostles, and by those the apostles laid hands on. The text I'll point to is Acts 8, 17 through 19. It's just a little chunk of a story. Uh, if any of you guys know the story about Simon the sorcerer, this is that story. Then Peter and John placed their hands on these new believers in Samaria. And they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So the phrase here, receive the Holy Spirit. Normally when we talk about receiving the Holy Spirit, like, well, at baptism, you receive the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is a seal of your faith to steal another biblical term. And it guarantees your salvation so long as you continue to have faith, to believe and obey in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And that is a good and biblical way to use the phrase. The thing is, how are people seeing like I've baptized people. I've never once seen the Holy Spirit descend and enter someone. I've never watched it happen. So how is it that Peter and John are laying hands on this person, on, on these people? There's a group of people. And everyone around sees that they receive the Holy Spirit because Simon comments on it. He goes, oh my gosh, these people have received the Holy Spirit. Give me this ability to give people the Holy Spirit. And apparently it's something unique. It's not connected to their faith, whatever is meant by receiving the Holy Spirit in this specific passage. It can't just be connected to their faith because they already had faith and had not yet received the Holy Spirit. The apostles had to come and lay on hands. So I'm going to read between the lines here, but it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Something physically happens. There is some sort of miraculous event or giving of miraculous gifts at this moment. What in charismatic circles you might call baptism in the Holy Spirit. Something happens here that is noticeable to everyone around, including Simon. And that, that's why he goes, well, holy crap, wait, every other Christian that I've met hasn't been able to do this. I want that power, this seemingly magic thing the apostles are doing. I want to be able to, to give other people the abilities that they're giving these people. Another proof text for this going on is Romans 1 11. When Paul is writing to the church in Rome, which he has never visited before saying, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. So clearly there's something that Paul is able to do that gives a gift to some of the people in the church, maybe all of them. Yeah. Something that other people can't do. And remember, Paul is not one of the 12, and he's not even named a replacement for Judas. But there are other there are other apostles named in Scripture outside the 12. So Paul is one. He would make 13 uh, when you take out Judas, but then he's replaced by Matthias. But there's like, like Junia, for example. It's always the famous one people argue out because it's a female name at the end of the Book of Romans. Is called an apostle. And I know people say, no, 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 that phrase means outstanding among the apostles. That's a that's a reconstruction of the phrase that was never the way it was translated early into Latin, into any early like vulgar language. It's it was never understood that way. It's a woman. Get over it. Work your theology around it. Anyways, there are other apostles' name, but there's something that Paul 
probably as an apostle, can do that other people can't. And apparently at this point in history, no other apostle had visited Rome, or at least not long enough to lay on hands and or do whatever Paul was talking about doing here, to give some spiritual gift to them. So thanks, thanks for buttressing the argument there. I mean, Paul is giving spiritual gifts. I'm arguing that spiritual exist, gifts exist. So, But this is the important part to this question. See, Jason and I have both been talking about spiritual gifts existing, and neither side is going to argue that spiritual gifts didn't exist in the first place. If you do, I don't think you can read. <laughs> Period. Yeah. If you do, you can't be a Christian because our faith is based on the idea that there was a miraculous spiritual event where Jesus returned to life from the dead. So you have to believe miracles happen. Exactly. At the very least. you. The question is just, do they still happen? Or more specifically, do they still happen by human hands? So, Jason, I think that's a pretty solid place to cut it for this first episode on cessationalism so we record our what am i saying cessational i'm saying cessationalism or cessationalism yeah, you're, you're adding a yeah. syllable yeah you're right you're right i did say it that time i know that i don't think the first time i did but whatever this will be where we cut for our episode on cessationism i had to slow it down for you guys mostly for me we appreciate you guys listening. We will talk about continuation, continuationism next week so that you guys can see both sides of the coin and you get to hear Jason ask me questions, which I will deflect like a yep. ninja. Yeah, it'll be great. Thank you guys for listening. And if you enjoyed us, give us five stars or send us $5. Thank you guys. And we will see you next week.